tangential types of questions that we'll have about the text. But as far as tools of the trade go, things you want for this class, you do want at bare minimum an ESV, it's just so you can follow along with us. And then also, if you can do the Lutheran Study Bible, very helpful, especially on a day like today where I'll just be flat out reading some preliminary sections from the Study Bible, the, the notes that they have ahead of the text of Revelation. Second, if you get super into it, um, this is the other resource you want. This is uh, the Concordia Commentary from the Concordia Commentary series, Revelation, uh, by Lewis Brighton. Lewis Brighton, you can get this at ConcordiaPublishinghouse.com or probably Amazon or anything like that. And as far as, um, as, far as a sort of the be-all, end-all commentary, at least that we have, uh, this is the one. Now, there is, a, there is a shorter version of this, a, a more cost-effective version of this out there that you can find. You can, one time you can find it for $15 or $20, um, and I assume it's great. It's just a condensed version of this. It may not uh, answer all the questions you have. So if Revelation is something you very much get into, then I would recommend this commentary. There are, of course, other great commentaries and other great texts I'm going to be using along the way to sort of round out my understanding of the text and my presentation of the text to you. But pretty much my caveat is if it's really good, it's probably from here. <laughs> this is a great commentary. Um, maybe one of the only weaknesses that's known about this commentary is perhaps it tends to not quite see the sacramental imagery implicit and inherent in Revelation as much as one would wish. But as far as I'm concerned, that's easily supplemented, and so I'll be, uh, I'll be providing that background for you as well as, as we march through. So, Lutheran Study Bible, if you want a commentary, this is your commentary, Revelation, Lewis Brighton, Concordia Commentary Series. And um, then I have to confess, too, that the, the opening or introductory class on Revelation is not really what I personally enjoy. I personally enjoy simply jumping into the text and, uh, and, and, and digging in and, and seeing it for what it is. But we have to do some preliminary work. Now, the preliminary work that I actually enjoy, that's what I'm going to do first. And then the other stuff, well, you might really enjoy it. I don't. That's okay. Uh, I'll do it anyway, just for the sake of having that background and having that foundation upon which we can build. So, I talked for a few moments about what Revelation isn't. What Revelation is, and what I hope you'll begin to see from this class, is that it would be best in your thinking if you, if you thought or conceived of Revelation as really the fifth gospel. Really, it's the fifth gospel. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, those are sometimes called the synoptic gospels. Uh, you can hear the word optic there, uh, view, and then, and then sin, like, like the, the width or the synthesis, like the synthesized view. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all presenting you know, more or less the same narrative, the same optic on the, the earthly... Uh, you know, the incarnation, the earthly life, death, resurrection, up through the ascension of Jesus, with some variance, obviously. And then John, the fourth gospel, comes along, and John is an outlier. John is strange. That's one of the interesting things, kind of one of the ironies. Very frequently, what, what we'll say to, to people who are either new Christians or interested in Christianity is we'll say, read the gospel of John. And I think we do that because there are things like John 3.16, For God so loved the world. And, and there are these texts that are so crystal clear that that's why we want people to read John and come to know Jesus in those crystal clear texts. But what's ironic or what's interesting about that recommendation is of the four Gospels, John is the deepest. John is the one that has layer upon layer upon layer of depth and complexity and um, you know, and I, I'm not being disparaging in any sense of the word, but John, relative to the other Gospels, is a work of, of literary art. Okay, so that gives us a little more background and depth on the four Gospels. Now, that Gospel of John, written by John, why I spent that time giving you that context is because that John who wrote the Gospel of John is the same John who writes Revelation. 
And this is a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it, it serves to get a point across, and that's that, that if, you look at, if you look at the four Gospels, they're dealing with, with like sort of the earthly life and ministry, the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and then Revelation takes over like, well, what now? What does the life of the resurrected, glorified, reigning Jesus look like at present? So you can think about it in your mind like that if you want. I mean, you know, there's any number of ways to look at this, okay? So your mileage may vary and take or leave, but you can kind of look at the four Gospels as being about the earthly life of Jesus, and then Revelation as the fifth life is not so much the earthly life or what we sometimes call the state of humiliation, that is, Jesus... Um, uh, condescending to be born of a woman and, and bear our sin and be our savior and be born under, a law, under law and under obedience to the law and under obedience to his father, even unto death, death on a cross, you know, Philippians 2 style, etc. You can look at the four gospels as doing that. Then you can look at Revelation by contrast as the exaltation, um, the exalted, resurrected, glorified Lord. What, what, is, what is that? Okay, what is that about? And that's really what the book of Revelation is doing. In fact, what you're going to see in the opening lines of Revelation, ha, which I suppose is a place we could have started as well, is what is the name of this thing? Is it the book of Revelation? Is it the book of Revelations? Plural? Is it uh, Revelations? Is it the Revelation of John? Revelation of John the Seer? Um, e even the ESV, I think, uh, as, well as, as well as sort of the, the editors of the Greek text, they put in the Apocalypsis. Yanu, the, the revelation of John. Okay, but there's, there's a problem with that. Um, and, a, and actually, actually, like, the beginning of everything going wrong with how we read Revelation is right there in, in the title and in the first lines because the very first line of the title as John writes it and the working title of the book itself is Apocalypsis Yesu Christu. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, A, it is definitively revelation singular, not revelations. And B, it's not really revelation or revelation of John, but rather revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the whole point of the Bible then is a revelation, or of the, of the Bible, of course, the whole point of Revelation is that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ in his ascended glory. And so it's very much a fifth gospel. Now, you have John writing the gospel of John with all its layers of complexity about the earthly sort of ministry and life of Jesus. Then you have the same John picking up and writing Revelation. It's going to have all the same levels of complexity and depth and theological profundity that the gospel of John does. You know, I suppose it's analogous to the way you can think of how Luke wrote the book of Luke and also wrote the book of Acts. Part one is Jesus, and then part two is the church. You can think of John writing John, part one, the gospel of John, part two, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can think of it in the same way you think of Luke and Acts as connected and really just one book. Um, you can think of John and Revelation as connected and as one book, showing the two sides of the coin of who our Lord Jesus Christ is. Okay, so all that to say that the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, as the book ought to be properly called, really is best understood as a fifth gospel. Now, that language of the apocalypsis Yesu Christu, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is fascinating language because we have a, we have a genitive problem there grammatically. Is, it, is Jesus Christ the thing being revealed? Or is he the one doing the revealing? You see, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's ambiguous. Is he the one doing the revealing or is he the one being revealed? The easy answer to that is yes. It's both. But if you absolutely had to decide one or the other, um, it, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. He's doing the revealing, and what he's revealing is himself. It's the self-revelation of Jesus Christ in his glory to his church. Okay. Now, this is a very interesting thing. 
the language of apocalypsis is the language of unveiling. Now, in the, in the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then connecting Acts, you have this very common way of thinking and understanding. It's the way we're all, it's the way we're taught in Sunday school. It's, and it's right. It's great. It's wonderful. But the idea is that Jesus ascends into heaven, and the same way that he ascended, he will descend. And everything is very concrete and uh, simple, relatively speaking, easy to understand. Jesus goes up, the cloud envelops him. When he comes down, it'll be in a cloud. There he'll be again. It's, it's not, a, it's not very, a very complex idea. And so when we think of the second coming of Christ, we most frequently think of it as this. In the same way he went up, he goes down, as the scriptures teach. And that's great. But the language of apocalypsis is a bit more mysterious and not contradicting the other way of thinking at all, but adding to it like, again, another side of a coin where it's just like, whoa, I didn't see it from that angle. And to put it as simply as I can, the angle is this. Uh, we are waiting for Jesus to return. There's no doubt about that. And yet, what else do the scriptures say? He has filled all in all. Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. More specifically, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Whoever hears you, Jesus says to his apostles, hears me. So in what sense is Jesus up in heaven waiting to return down to earth? I mean, that's true, but it's also true that he's already filled all in all and is in all places and all those verses we just quoted. And that's what the language of apocalypsis helps us understand. The unveiling of Jesus Christ is, in a sense, his return because it's, it's really not his return in the sense that he's not here. He's here. It's his return in the sense of him being unveiled. His presence, which is now accessible only to faith. It is only the believers who perceive the presence of Jesus. That presence is, on the last day, unveiled, and we see that the Lord has been with us. You know, that's the same language of unveiling the present Lord. You can even think of in Matthew's gospel, he does this in a way, at the final judgment. You remember in Matthew 25, I think it is, with the sheep and the goats? And he does this unveiling with the goats on his left hand um, and the sheep on his right. Whatever you did unto the least of these, my brothers, you did unto me. And then to, the, to those on the left, whatever you did not do to them, you did not do to me. In other words, I was with you the whole time, and now I am unveiled, I am apocalypsist, I am uh, revealed unto you. So there's a sense in which when we think of the parousia, the second coming of Jesus, we can think of it in the traditional spatial way. He went up, he's coming back down. And if that's what you like, that's great. Nothing wrong with it, everything right with it. We can think about it in another way, too, a little bit more complex, that Jesus is here. He fills all in all, and on the last day, his coming is a revelation, is an unveiling, that in fact, he has been here and has been reigning this entire time. Okay, so... Um, Again, we, we want to understand that language of apocalypsis because that's the title of the book and the first lines of the entire text. So, um, this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So, in the first place, we want to see this then as a fifth gospel, as an unveiling of Jesus Christ. What we're going to see then next is that Revelation is a deeply liturgical book. In fact, already in, I think it's verse 3, you get an inclination, uh, or, or you, get this, you get this, well, let's, let me just read it. Um, it's not an inclination, that's the wrong word. It's um, an indication that this is taking place in the context of worship. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. In other words, the setting of revelation is the setting of divine service, is the setting of the church, the ecclesia, gathered together 
okay, in sacred assembly where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, there I am. And then what do you have here in this text? You have the unveiling of the Jesus Christ who is present in our midst so that we come to see him and know him more deeply, more intimately in a very real, very concrete, very active, present tense sort of way. That really is how revelation is meant to be received. Now, we would hardly have the stomach for that because, you know, if the pastor goes longer than about 12 minutes, we'll kind of tap in our watch. Uh, revelation would take much longer than that to read through. But that's really how the text of Revelation from the author is meant to be read in the, or is meant to be used in the context of divine service, surrounded by the liturgy of the church with the word and the sacrament at the center. And of course, you think in the early church and in our church, it's the, it's the Lord Jesus Christ in his body and blood enfleshed in our midst that's at the center. And now you have Revelation being the unveiling of that one and the same Jesus Christ. So this entire text is liturgical. And what you're going to see then is that Jesus, as he is in heaven, and then you've got Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, and, and he's referring to earthly bread and earthly wine. It's like there's not two Jesuses, one in, one in heaven and one on earth. It's, it's that wherever Jesus is, there heaven and earth are joined. And so, so we see then that what Revelation does liturgically is it links the eternal, ongoing worship of the Lamb, the worship of Jesus in heaven that is going on, like even as we drive down the freeway and go to Target and, you know, work from home or do whatever it is we're doing. This, this cosmic heavenly liturgy is going on. And then when we, when, when we have divine service... We are participating in that divine worship. Heaven has come down to earth, or earth has joined heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. There's not one Jesus in heaven and one on earth, but heaven and earth are joined together in him. And that's why in our liturgy we say things like, with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. But now, the more you drink this in and the more you embrace this and understand this, which is just foundational to Revelation, you understand that the cosmos is liturgical that what is that the whole thing that's going on is a liturgy that that when we pray you know that god's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven the liturgical reality of heaven that that would spill forth down to earth and the earth would fully become one with heaven that's what we're praying for on earth as it is in heaven. And then we come to understand that the whole cosmos is different. It's different than we thought. It's not a still, silent place filled with empty space with a few specks of light here and there and a few little dust specks of planets. We happen to be on an insignificant little blue planet in the middle of an insignificant little galaxy and we ourselves are insignificant. No. The entire thing is imbued with meaning because the entire creation is, is part and parcel of the heavenly cosmic liturgy that is ongoing. This, by the way, um, suddenly makes, makes perfect sense like of many of the psalms and the images used in Scripture where the, where the sun is leading the, I mean the sun, the S-U-N, is leading the com cosmic liturgy. Um, with its rising and its setting, you can see where paganism goes wrong and starts worshiping the creature itself rather than the creator behind. And the creator behind has made the creature in such a way that, and here I mean like the sun, and you can think of our, our circling around the sun if you like, that the ordering of creation, the design of creation is liturgical in nature. It creates cycles and seasons, and it creates... Um, repetition and uh, yeah I'm quite abstract here I know and I apologize if I'm if I'm losing you for that maybe we can think very concretely for just a moment and very simply because of the revelation of Jesus Christ because of his incarnation because of his death because of his resurrection because of his ascension because of his reigning because of his returning because of all things creation itself becomes transformed in our perception. 
And we begin to live not by the rising and the setting of the sun, S-U-N, but rather by the dying and rising of the sun, the S-O-N. And then in this, we begin to see that the S-U-N is designed in such a way that it is preaching to us daily of the dying and rising of the S-O-N, so that every single day is ordered and constituted by the, by the dying and rising of the great light. And then the sun begins to preach to us. Again, we don't worship the sun itself, that's paganism. But the sun begins to preach to us of the one in whom we should place our worship and trust, the S-O-N, that we live by, and time is ordered, and all things move by the dying and rising of that great light, the great light. Okay, so that's a much more concrete way of looking at it. But I mean to tell you, this whole thing expands out until it's really endless. Everywhere you look is yet another aspect of the cosmic liturgy. And a world that, that seemed empty and senseless and void and meaningless, and so much of our scientific method has, has created this view in us. I mean, it, it, some people even point this out, some of our, our Christian apologists, that the sky used to be called the heavens, and it used to be perceived as, as full. Well, of course, due to our pollution, it doesn't look so full. But ever since the scientific revolution and all of these things, we've, we've come to see it not as the heavens, but as space. Not as full, but as empty. Not as intentional, but as accidental. Not as important, but as kind of insignificant. Not as authored with the intention of one who has designed the whole thing, but rather as just happenstance. And so, so then you see how this whole worldview that we've been sucked into seeing and perceiving through is utterly wrong. And Revelation is the is the medicine that we need to regain and re-understand what it is that is already right there in front of our eyes. Namely, the whole creation is liturgical. Heaven is liturgical. And heaven and earth kiss in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're doing, every divine service. And then, and then from that divine service and from this reality of which we're speaking flows everyday life flows vocational life and how we perceive the people around us, not as mortals, but as immortal souls. I mean, as people who will exist forever, either in rejection of God or in love for Him. And, um, we see a creation that, that then, you know, it's like, it's like when we see the bleakness of creation or the changing of climate or whatever it is that bugs us, you know. It's like, yeah, but creation itself has been tied into the death and resurrection of Jesus. And where we see death in the creation, we ought to see it as a proclamation of Jesus' death. And where we see life in the creation, we ought to see it as a proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, this is written into our, our, our seasons, as we well know. It's written into our days and our weeks. It's written into the church year, as we experience it as, as historical liturgical Christians. So, this... Um, I mean, what's being transformed, sometimes I misspeak it, it's not so much as if creation's being transformed. Rather, what's being transformed is us and our perception of creation. And we're beginning ever more to see creation as it always has been and always will be. And we see that creation itself has been conformed into the image of the sun. And creation itself produce, uh, preaches the death and resurrection of Jesus, Good Friday and Easter, Good Friday and Easter, and all things we see. And then we can recognize it, and we can take great joy. You know, we don't say, oh, there's, there's death, that's bad. We can say, there's death, that's the death of my Lord. That's what's being preached to me. We can see life and not see it pessimistically and say, yeah, well, it's alive today, but dead tomorrow. We can say, yeah, but this is, it may be true, but this is preaching the resurrection of Jesus to me. Then we see that this whole cosmos itself must be sucked into the death of Jesus, and indeed already is, and will be spit back out, so to speak, from the resurrection of Jesus. And from that empty tomb will come forth a new creation. So we can already begin to perceive these things. And uh, in its own way, Revelation is a, is a perfect, perfect uh, frame for beginning to wrap your mind and your perception around this. Um, by the way, uh, the early church fathers, uh, I mean... I think, it was, I think it's Maximus the Confessor has like, oh, what's the name of his book now? 
liturgy of the cosmos. I mean, the early church fathers understood these things much more than we do. And, uh, but some of our better liturgists do, do definitely understand this, and I've learned much from them um, in this regard. Because it is really a profound reality. Is when you, so you glimpse into heaven, you realize that all in the book of Revelation, you, you glimpse into heaven with John, and what you see is liturgy. What you see is divine service. And then you go, whoa, if that's what's going on in heaven, then that's also part of what, what this aspect of creation is meant to be. And, and when we, again, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's like, okay, I get it. I get it. So we're going to be seeing that, and, and you can't help but meditate on those themes as you look at um, the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. Okay, well, let me pause for just a moment and see if any of our Zoom folks have a question while I grab a sip of coffee and try to recall what my third point is. I get kind of excited about these things. Yeah, well, there's always next week. Any thoughts or questions you have? I heard someone clearing their throat. Was that an indication or no? No. <laughs> leaf blower in the background, nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's power on. Let's let's go ahead and and look then um, a, a little bit uh, closer at our preliminary materials. So we've touched on we've touched on Revelation um, as the fifth as the fifth gospel. We've touched on Revelation as as window into the cosmic liturgy, and then we should also touch on Revelation as profound Christology. Profound, profound Christology. Like, you will find, you will look long and hard to find a book in all the scriptures that teaches you more about Jesus. Um, for example, and here I'm looking at Brighton's commentary, I just want to highlight this section. The Christology of Revelation is rich and broad in its scope. Throughout the book, Jesus Christ is presented as the exalted Son of Man, which of course you know has deep, rich Old Testament heritage as a messianic title, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God. We remember that from John's Gospel, now here also in Revelation. In fact, Jesus as the Lamb of God, and you know the sacrificial imagery there and the blood atonement imagery there. Jesus as the Lamb of God is the centerpiece, the organizing principle of all Revelation. So I'll take a quick tangent. When you think of Revelation, when we get to the throne room scene early in Revelation, where you have the throne room of God revealed, you have the one who is seated upon the throne, and in front of him you have the Lamb, and in front of the Lamb you have the lamp. This is John's way of saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The fact that when, if you were standing there and visually you would look at them, they would all blend together so that, the, so that the seven flames of the lamp are the seven eyes of the Lamb. And the Lamb is in the midst of the throne as if he were seated on the throne, and yet he's not the one upon the throne. You see, they're all one, and yet they're all distinct. All right, and then this idea of the Lamb of God in this throne room revelation, this is what governs the entire structure of visions, the entire structure of revelation, such that what you're doing is you're going to the throne room, and then in a, in a sense, everything you're doing from revelation flows from that throne room, flows from the Lamb, and leads back to the Lamb. Okay, so the entire book of Revelation flows from the throne room where the Lamb is at the center and leads back to the throne room where the Lamb is at the center. Again, like the, the Gospels themselves are the only things that compare in terms of like profound Christology. Okay, so back to the point, you have the Son of Man, that's Revelation 1, you have the Lamb of God, that's Revelation 5, and then by extension all throughout the book. The mighty angel of the church, as imaged by the angel of Revelation in 10, which some people think that is an angelomorphic type image, that that is Christ depicted as an angel. We'll talk about that. You also have the Lord of the church, which is a unique title given for Christ. The Lord of the church, Revelation 2. The judge of the world. You certainly get this elsewhere in the scriptures, but not nearly as explicitly as you do here. 
in Revelation 19. He's called the everlasting God. Again, this is the man, Jesus Christ, is called the everlasting God. That's uh, chapter 22. He's called the Word of God, which, of course, we remember from as being very distinctive to John's Gospel in the beginning of Gospel. In, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. And so you have this, uh, he's called the Word of God in chapter 19. He's also called the Source, which is a really loaded theological word, arche. It's actually how John begins his Gospel. In arche. In the beginning was the Word. And there's really a sense in which John is saying the Word is the source. If you read it that way, you'll understand the prologue to John's Gospel much better than we normally do. Um, but the Word as the source is explicit, the arche of the creation of God. Um, we meditated on that theme, in a, albeit via a different route, in our sermon this morning when we talked about Jesus as the door. He's the source, he's the arche of the creation of God, um, and of the new heaven and the new earth, which is a theme we'll see picked up in chapter 3 and at the climax in chapter 21. Again, in terms of like defeating the Gnosticism that has run so rampant here in American Christianity, where we all think like heaven is to be disembodied and leave our bodies and the lives behind and get a lobotomy and go up and float around as some kind of angel or cloud or ball of light forever. Um, that is not Christianity. Christianity is that God created the body, the body is good. Um, to die and be separated from our body is bad. Jesus is raised in his body, so we too shall be raised in our bodies. The corruption that has befallen this world needs to be cleansed such that there will be a new heavens of the new earth in which we can, in body and soul, dwell. Um, we are, you know, angels are spirit. We are spirit and body. We are, we are soul and flesh. And so uh, this is a, you know, this is a beautiful theme that is taught to us uh, in no uncertain terms in Revelation, of course, elsewhere in the Scriptures as well. I mean, the Scriptures talk more about the new heavens and the new earth than they ever talk about as our destination, than they ever talk about, like, quote-unquote, heaven or paradise as our destination. Of course, they do talk about that, just saying, like, where's the, it's not wrong, it's just where's the biblical emphasis, and the emphasis is on the resurrection of our bodies and the new heavens and the new earth. Where, by the way, that liturgy, that cosmic liturgy, will be in complete and total perfection. Heaven and earth in harmony and all of us perceiving it rightly. Okay, so you get, you get uh, Jesus as the arche, both of the, uh, of the first creation and of the second creation, if you will. Um, and, then, and then, as Brighton notes, this Christology is expanded in Revelation to include the thoughts that the exalted Christ is the Lord of the cosmos. Um, which is, means like all space. So sometimes we get this really stupid idea too that like, well, if there are aliens on other planets, um, Jesus has nothing to do with them. He's just the savior of earth. Yeah, no. Um, if there are life on other planets, whatever, Jesus is Lord of the cosmos. That's the plain teaching of the scriptures, okay? And then he's also the Lord of history, which means of all time. So we've got space here, we've got time here. He's the Lord of it all, and he's in control of it all. And part of the, part of the revelation will be that he was in control the entire time, and it will be that he has used evil even for his good purposes. And so to see him as the Lord of the cosmos and the Lord of history is, is something, again, Revelation gives us. He's the Lord of both the living and the dead. And of course, we can, we can understand that in two different ways. Uh, we can consider ourselves and the people around us as the living and those who are in their graves as the dead. Fair enough. But we can also consider him as the Lord of the living and the dead as all who believe in Jesus are alive and all who do not are dead in their trespasses. And that's probably a better way to think about it. Either way you think about it, he's the Lord of the living and the dead. He's the Lord of angels, here taught in Revelation, also taught in the first chapter of Hebrews, uh, to great impact. Um, what is shocking, what is stunning, is not so much that the angels worship the Son. I mean, they always worship the Son. They always worship the Trinity. Uh, but now the Son in human flesh, this man, the angels fall down at his very human feet and worship. It's a stunning, stunning thing. 
So the and again, it's one of these things where this idea this idea that when you when you die you become an angel or oh there's another angel in heaven. I mean, it's wrong, it's dumb, and it really bespeaks this idea of like we think being a human is inferior. The opposite is actually true to, to one degree or another. The angels worship at the human feet of Jesus. It's quite likely, and that many of the church fathers thought that this is why Satan ended up rebelling in pride. He couldn't stand the fact that Christ was going to become one flesh with us uh, in such a way that then the, the angels become our ministers and our servants and um, worship Christ in human flesh. Many of the church fathers thought that's precisely what the devil couldn't stomach and why he went down to destroy human flesh. Okay, well, be that as it may, he's the Lord of the angels. And again, when you think of the incarnate one, human being as Lord of the angels, whom they worship, it's a rather stunning thing. And the Lord of the world and all creation. Again, in chapter 22, we see this. So the third point that I'd bring up, you know, first point, fifth gospel. Second point, cosmic liturgy. Third point, is that this book is just so rich Christologically. In terms of Christology, it gives us names and data about Christ that we either don't find other places or we find in other places, but not quite as clear, rich, and deep as here in Revelation. Okay, um, yeah. The other thing we want to get to is, revel is the genre of Revelation. And this is, when it comes to actually reading, interpreting, and understanding Revelation, this is probably like where we, truth be told, just very concretely, this is where we fall apart. Is because we, we hear all these deep symbolic things and, you know, lambs and seven eyes and horns and dragons and beasts, and we let our imaginations run wild in all the wrong ways. What we need to understand is that Revelation isn't the only ancient book that is written in this style. These, these images of, you know, beasts and horns and um, dragons and, you know, this kind of thing, like and symbolic numbers and symbolic imagery. Okay, what you need to understand about Revelation is that it is one book and an entire genre of books that speak in this way. Okay? So we call this genre the apocalyptic genre. And so in the same way that like, you don't read prose the same way you read poetry, and you don't read poetry maybe the same way you read a, a, a hymn or song lyrics, uh, so to be sure there's overlap in all of these things, but you make a distinction between the, the genres, and you don't read a newspaper the way you read a, some liturgi or liturgical, literary, literary masterpiece, you know? Like, you read different genres differently. And the key to understand here is that, that Revelation is part of a whole library of this genre called apocalyptic literature. Okay, before I forget, what apocalyptic literature does for us, and we've been really, like, this is why, this is part of why Revelation's gotten such a bad rap in the, and then just been left to the misinterpreters of Revelation for like the past 200 years or so. As rationalism takes over and as this utopian-type thinking takes over of modernity, there's no room for revelation because revelation isn't, doesn't deal with like rational, logistical type of arguments. What, what you get, what you get in, in revelation isn't an argument. You get a picture. And if your mind works that way, you're going to love, you're going to love Revelation, like, like if, you, if you read Romans and go, well, this is hard, I kind of get it, and it all makes logical sense, but why is he so worried about it being logically tight, and why is so much emphasis put on argument? You know, that's Romans, that's the genre of Romans, that's the strength of Paul and the strength of his writings. That's not what John is doing in Revelation. John isn't making these kinds of rationalistic-based arguments. He is presenting images. All right, so that means you need to have a different way in which you read Revelation. I don't mean to be like pedantic or obnoxious about this. And again, your, your mileage may totally vary. Uh, but the apocalyptic genre is meant for you to engage your imagination, for you to picture what it is that John sees and is revealing. 
And so what if you picture it wrong? All right, that's not the point. The point is, picture it. All right, picture what he's saying. If you can't, that's fine. Try anyway. Uh, to read and really experience and enjoy Revelation, you've got to put yourself in almost like, for us as moderns, it's like a, a movie kind of thing. Like I'm seeing a movie, or I'm looking at a painting. Like that's what, or I'm, or I'm listening to a symphony. Like there's not, there's not usually tight logic in those types of genres. That's not the point. It's, it's truth by other media, by other means, and that's how Revelation works. So, um, and, and by the way, Revelation, again, as well as the other literature within the scriptures um, that is apocalyptic in genre. So, as, um, as Brighton points out, uh, where to start? Yeah, so, so maybe I'll just start with this paragraph, and I'll just mention a few of these things to you. In the Old Testament, Jacob... Uh, in Genesis 28, Joseph in Genesis 40 through 41, and Moses in Exodus 24 were among those given to see heavenly and or future things. And the later prophets, for example, Isaiah chapter 6, you remember that revelation of the cherubim and seraphim, report what they were allowed to hear and see from above. Okay, so what you're noticing is the language of sight. Now, already, like, if you're logically minded, you're going like, well, see with your eyes, see with your imagination, in the body, out of the body, what's going on? And to which it is all wonderfully silent. I mean, Paul even in one place says, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But it's beside the point, okay? The point is, this is a visionary, experiential phenomena that occurs to these men, as recorded in Scripture. Again, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Isaiah, and, and many others, of course. Um, they, were all, they all reported what they were allowed to see and hear from above. Now, Brighton continues, especially the visions described in Isaiah 24 through 27. Those are chapters. Otherwise, we, if it was short, we'd go read. Ezekiel 1 through 3. If you remember Ezekiel 1, I've preached on it before, and... Um, it's uh, the great storm, and he sees Yahweh in the midst of the storm, and the chariot of Yahweh, and the wheels. Remember this? The wheels have eyes in them, and the, char the chariot's this uh, incredible thing. In fact, the, the four beings, sometimes they're called cherubim, more commonly they're called the living creatures, but the four beings that form the chariot of God are there in Ezekiel, and we're going to see them again in Revelation. Okay, so Isaiah 24 through 27, Ezekiel 1, uh, chapters 1 through 3, also chapters 38 through 39, Joel, as in almost the entire book, Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, and Zechariah, again, almost the entire book, um, all exhibit some of the characteristics prominent in the genre of apocalyptic literature. And because these are all inspired by the same Holy Spirit who inspires John, this really forms the background, the background text um, that John himself is working with. So, uh, so when, so if you really like, and maybe we'll do this to one degree or another. But to, in order to really understand what, what John's trying to communicate and some of the imagery that he's presenting to us, as if it makes sense, it's like, well, where's the code by which I can decipher this? And the code by which you can decipher it is in these texts that we've just listed. You go back and you go back, and it's, it's like anything else. It's like you gain a broader sense of the context, a broader sense of the language, and suddenly things that you once didn't understand, now you understand. I mean, it's just not... Voodoo is just like anything else you study. It's like any other kind of language. The language of the apocalyptic genre just happens to be a visual language, and then it uses these very specific archetypal or iconic kinds of images um, that, again, are very common. Now, we're, we've heretofore only touched on the biblical examples of the, um, apocry uh, the apocalyptic genre, but there are extra biblical examples as well. And I remember when I studied this, you could take, um, as an MDiv at seminary, you could take like one advanced class or something in the old curriculum, and I chose Revelation, so you get to, you get to sit in there in like a, 
like your post MDiv studies. I mean, I was in there with the other, with the PhD candidates and. Um, as we're studying this. So the very first thing we had to do, and I didn't understand it and I didn't like it one bit, but like the very first week, all we did was read these extra biblical texts. And I'm going to read some of them to you, the names of some of them to you, but that's all we did. And it was like super like disappointing when you just want to get into the text and know it. But the thing about doing that is you realize that there's this whole genre outside of the Bible and that the Bible utilizes and the Revelation is, that's its bread and butter, and it's this apocalyptic genre. So, as Brighton points out, as for extra-biblical, apocalyptic, important Jewish apocalypses, now not even Christian, Jewish apocalypses, First Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, Fourth Ezra, uh, the Assumption of Moses, Second Baruch, uh, the Apocalypse of Abraham, that was one that we read, and the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. Then, there are not only Jewish apocalypses, but there are Christian apocalypses, uh, including these, the ascension of Isaiah, um, the shepherd of Hermas, which of course we read, the apocalypse of Peter, and the apocalypse of Paul. Now, you'll notice, of course, that these are not actually written by these folks. Um, these are written anonymously using the names of these folks in order to sort of grant credibility. But the whole point of this is that if you go look these up online and you read through them, you'll gain a sense for what the apocalyptic genre is, and then you'll see Revelation as fitting in there. And it'll seem, in a way, much less strange and much less sensational. Um, you know, in that chapter about the armored locusts, all growing up in the 90s when we were, you know, going over to the Middle East, it was like helicopters. Those are the black locusts. And you just, again, you see, begin to see how absurd this is and how ridiculous this kind of interpretation is. And I'm just pecking on one thing, but of course there are people who read the entire book of Revelation this way. Oh, there's a beast. It must be this country or that person or this other thing. I, no. No, and if you spend any time in the apocalyptic genre, you'll realize that it's laughably ridiculous to read a text like that. Um, it's doing its own thing on its own terms, uh, certainly communicating to people of the first century. And that's what we're going to get into next week as we look at the, the letters to the seven churches. These are real, concrete, historical churches of the late first, early second century uh, to whom John is writing in order to be understood by them, okay? So, so that's another way in which we're going to uh, be looking at, at uh, Revelation, is this isn't a book written for people to get out their decoder rings 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 years or however long this, you know, the, this era goes um, to try to decipher what's happening in terms of current events. That's not what the book's designed for. And again, probably the easiest way to grasp this is to just sort of immerse yourself in the biblical or a few of the extra biblical examples of the apocalyptic genre. All right, I think I've beaten that horse dead. Um, but again, I, I, will, uh, I will emphasize that uh, for us who aren't accustomed to thinking in this way, uh, it's revelation is um, it's much more meditative, uh, you're going to get out of it largely what you put into it. You're going to have to activate and exercise your imagination. You're going to have to try to picture whether that's you know more or less concrete for you as God gives, so be it. Um, but that's the exercise in apocalyptic genres. You want to look about these things, think about these things, and tap into that idea of like, okay, what is this imagery communicating? What is this, this vision, this picture saying? What concrete things can I take from it? What things are too specific and I shouldn't take that from it? You know, these are the kinds of exercises you want to be having and thinking about as you meditate on an apocalyptic text. Okay, um, as I'm running out of time here, the final point I'll make in terms of our, our you know, my preliminary things I'd like you to consider as we leap into the study of Revelation um, is, is to think of it um, very simply that aside from the revelation of Jesus Christ, the whole point of Revelation, the whole comfort of Revelation is everything is in God's hands. 
even the very worst of all things, you're going to see they, come, they all come from the throne room. God is surprised by nothing. All the bad things come right from his throne room. And as you're going to see, they're for his good purposes. And they're for his salvific purposes. And even when things get so intensely terrible that you can't imagine anything worse, it's like, why is he doing that? Still to save and wake up whomever he can save and wake up right up until the final bell sounds and the whole thing closes for good. You know, that's, that's the point in purpose. So in all things, God is in control. That's A. B, in the end, God wins. And there was never a question. There was never a doubt. All the devil, all the evil, are, were just simply bent to God's purposes and, and his good purposes. And so, you know, like, like it, <laughs> so like if you want to win and make sure you win, be on God's side. And then the other thing about this that I love is because we, sometimes we get too wrapped around our axle as, as Lutherans and this theology of the cross idea. And, you know, it's kind of like losing is winning. It's like, yeah, well, that's only true in terms of like, you know, the crucifixion logic. Jesus is risen, and Jesus reigns, and he's coming back victorious, and he's coming back glorious, and it's not like losing is winning at the end. In the end, it's just winning is winning. In the end, Jesus actually gets on his horse, unsheaths his sword, and uh, gets rid of evil. Let's put it that way. It kicks evil out definitively once and forever. So it is... Uh, it is a glorious book of, uh, of the victory of God and uh, incredibly encouraging for us to then, then hear, hear the warnings and hear the threats and see the reality of Revelation. Repent, have our sins forgiven by the living Christ, join with him on his side, which is definitively the winning side, and to know that all things, even the bad things, are in his hand and he's going to make all things new. That's the point and the purpose. So, with those things in mind, let's close for today. We'll get back into the text itself, you know, next week. The Lord be with you.